0: In the intensive care unit, the onset of acute renal failure is often to remain a lethal complication for the past 50 years. Once established, acute renal failure usually requires renal replacement therapy during the days the weeks that require for recovery of renal function. Hemodialysis continues uh, to be perfected, and we are also developing new forms of renal replacement therapy, but they have not uh, resulted in a significant improvement of survival of acute renal failure. Patients who have acute renal failure have more than a 50% probability of death, and those patients in the uh, intensive care unit who develop acute renal failure, um, an increasing proportion of them are developing an association with uh, sepsis and sepsis syndromes. Typically, a patient will develop sepsis and then a condition called SIRS, which is Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. We've all heard the silly expression that if one jumps out of a plane, it's not the fall that kills you, but it's a sudden stop. Now our, our model for uh, approaching infection is often it's not the infection that will kill a patient, but the patient's own body's response to that infection. That'll develop an inflammatory cascade called SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, and it's that SIRS that produces multi-organ failure to the patient, and uh, in a lot of cases, death. The idea that remote events in the body can produce a renal failure something that was really first elucidated, which is a fancy word for teased out, uh, in World War II. In World War II, during the bombing campaigns of the Germans in London, large numbers of people um, were entrapped in collapsed buildings, and this resulted in crush injuries to often to their lower extremities. When these patients were rescued, these uh, crushed and ischemic extremities released uh, the muscle pigment myoglobin. Um, and uh, myoglobin, as you know uh, or may not know, is a nephrotoxin or uh, a kidney poison, and that produced uh, renal failure uh, in uh, the days uh, to follow. So there was really the first example where we looked at where a remote injury or a remote event in the body could result in a direct damage or injury uh, to the kidneys. Then uh, in World War II, when a patient developed acute renal failure, um, the, uh, the mortality rate was approximately 80%. Renal replacement therapy uh, really came on scene in the late 40s and there was some hope that we would see a significant decline in its mortality rate. And initially it did certainly help with uh, issues of managing uh, potassium and uremia, Uh, but but, uh, dialysis was really incapable of uh, reducing the mortality rate associated with acute renal failure uh, less than 50%. It wasn't until the Korean War uh, where, even with aggressive resuscitation, that the association of... um, Uh, renal failure with sepsis was uh, really um, uh, drawn. In 1967, uh, at the Shock Trauma Unit at University of Maryland, uh, some researchers, Strach, demonstrated that patients with septic shock um, with renal dysfunction had a a decreased glomerular filtration rate, which then attributed to a decrease in renal blood flow. And it was the renal failure that was directly linked to the death in those patients in that that particular study. Uh, At the same time, in Southeast Asia, during the Vietnam conflict, uh, individuals who developed renal failure it was concluded that infection was the direct result in 72% of the deaths. What exactly is, is acute renal failure? It's defined as an abrupt decrease in kidney function that results in the accumulation of nitrogenous solutes. What does that mean? Well, it means your kidneys don't work very well. You see an elevation of BUN. You see an elevation of creatinine. You also see some problems with the electrolytes. and The most notable of those is potassium. We have... Um, the urine output in acute renal failure typically is what we call oliguric. That means it's not, you know, not much urine, low urine output. And the definition for a low urine output is roughly 400 milliliters per day. Uh, there's also non-oliguric renal failure, and that means you're making uh, urine. And sometimes the urine it not only is the rate right normal, but you may also see uh, large amounts of urine. But despite having uh, normal urine output or high urine output, uh, the solute clearance, so the removal of the nitrogenous waste, waste products, is decreased. And so therefore you see an elevation of things like um, uh, your BUN and your creatinine and, and some electrolyte problems, so things like potassium. And this is what uh, um, I refer to as dumb urine. You're making urine, but it's not helpful urine, and it's certainly not intelligent urine. We've uh, certainly passed along that the idea that the uh, mortality rate associated with the renal failure is high, and we're looking at a number of approximately 50%. Regardless of the urine output, the complications from acute renal fire are from the retention of those metabolic waste products. You see an increase in your BUN, you see an increase in the serum concentrations, you have problems with hyper hypervolemia, and you have problems with electrolyte imbalances. Typically, we classify urine, uh, Typically, we classify acute renal fire uh, whether it's pre-renal or happening before the kidney, post-renal, happening after the kidney, and this is including the, mostly the collecting systems, the bladder, the urethra, and the uh, intrinsic parenchymal disease. And this is the kidney prop Let's start with some of the parenchymal disease. And these th- things typically incur things like ATN, uh, which is acute tubular necrosis, pigment nephropathy. Uh, this is typically from circulating myoglobin or hemoglobin. In a burn setting, uh, patients will get myoglobin from massive muscle destruction, from electrical injuries, which basically cooks the muscles. Uh, also, thermal injuries uh, can cause uh, myoglobin release. In very deep third-degree and fourth-degree burns, the muscle is destroyed, releasing myoglobin. And with circumferential burns of the lower extremities, patients can get compartment syndromes, creating release of myoglobin, which is nephrotoxic. Other causes of prankable disease are things like uh, uh, acute glomerulonephritis and vasculitis, but these typically aren't causes of acute renal failure in in the uh, ICU patient. Renal prankable disease is uh, responsible for about 10 to 30% of of the cases of acute renal failure. Um, And renal prankable disease is is really... uh, um, diagnosed after excluding any pre-renal or, or renal causes. Typically uh, things that you can do to suggest renal-pranquil disease patients will typically have a normal volume status, have normal perfusion, specific gravity of the urine is, is less than 1.015, uh, the urine osmolality is less than 350 uh, and the urine sodium is greater than 40. Basically, they're not able to concentrate the urine, and they have a phena that's typically greater than 3%. The causes typically are from ischemia or big-wing nephrotoxic uh, drugs, pigment nephropathy, and, and rarely drug-induced allergic interstitial nephritis. I want to go over those again to, to really make the point. Ischemia, nephrotoxic drugs, pigment and drug-induced allergic interstitial nephritis, uh, things like cephalosporins and so forth. But when you look at those four things, it's probably fair to say that the most common cause of renal failure in the surgical ICU patient is a multifactorial cause. Now, when we look at ATN, as far as intrinsic renal preenchymal disease, ATN is the big one. It's really responsible for about 80% of the cases. And the majority of cases of ATN are from, as we said, ischemic and toxic insults. Uh, the ischemic causes typically have a higher incidence of oliguria and a more prolonged uh, clinical course. Uh, when you're looking at a surgical ICU and whether a patient's having ischemia um, uh, causing the renal failure, you know are they a trauma patient? They have a large intraoperative blood loss. Go back look at the anesthesia record where there are periods of hypotension uh, on the anesthesia operative record. how is there a large blood loss associated with that as well? ACE inhibitors are another uh, big one because what they do is they actually cause the efferent arterial um, uh, to dilate. Patients with bilateral renal artery stenosis, congestive heart failure, NSAIDs uh, can also cause it, cirrhosis, and even prolonged azotemia from a variety of sources. Nephrotoxic agents that's a big one. Aminoglycoside antibiotics, chemotherapy agents, uh, radiographic contrast material. And again, if you're looking at uh, patients in any intensive care unit, a large percentage of patients are on uh, any one, if not multiple, of these agents. What are some of the drugs that can cause uh, uh, renal failure, The nephrotoxin? Well, heroin, not something we give our patients very often, hydrolazine, penicillin G, uh, thiazides, aminoglycosides, amphotericin, polymixin, lithium, vitamin D intoxication. Acetaminophen, aspirin, methicillin, but contrast media is probably the big one. The actual way that each individual individual drug damages the kidney is dependent individually on each of the offending drugs, so it's not one uh, method by which uh, uh, nephrotoxic drugs uh, injure the kidney. But through the processes of resorption and secretion, the kidney is exposed to high concentrations of these drugs, uh, and uh, the byproducts of them often can be toxic, Um, If the patient is hypovolemic, that will make the problem even worse. Since most of the damage occurs to the tubules after the drug has been filtrated through the glomerulus, often patients who have a nephrotoxic um, injury to the kidney um, by the drugs will have non-oliguric renal failure because the glomerulus is not injured, it's the tubules, and therefore these patients will have um, uh, normal urine output. Focusing a little bit on contrast media, very common nephrotoxin. The incidence of contrast nephropathy is between 1 and 10% and can be predicted according to a number of risk factors. These include the amount of contrast that's given, uh, the age of the patient, any pre-existing renal insufficiency, uh, as well as diabetes. Pigment nephropathy is not an uncommon cause of acute renal failure. And as I said earlier, it's typically seen in patients who are trauma patients or burn patients um, or um, result of some operation or other kind of catastrophe. Any kind of insult uh, or ischemia or blunt injury to large muscle masses that can release myoglobin to the circulation. Myoglobin is a well-known uh, nephrotoxin. Now here's where it gets a little bit interesting and complicated is that myoglobin by itself is not uh, a direct nephrotoxin. But if it gets in the presence of acidic urine, okay? so the myoglobin is released into the urine, the urine has a low pH or is acidic, then it creates a molecule known as ferahemate. Ferahemate is toxic to the renal cells. So if a patient has large breakdown of myoglobin releasing the urine, one thing that we can do to prevent renal failure is to prevent the conversion of myoglobin to ferahemate. One way to prevent um, myoglobin-induced renal failure is to suspect it and recognize which patients are at risk. Therefore, patients who have burns, trauma, seizures, alcohol, drugs and intoxications, prolonged ischemia to muscle groups and extended coma. These are the patients who are at risk. Now you can get uh, serum CPKs, they're typically elevated. You can send urine for urine myoglobin, though that would take a significant long period of time. What we would recommend doing is get a urinalysis. If you see large free hemoglobin and few red cells, that's highly indicative of a patient having myoglobin. Now, if a patient is spilling myoglobin in their urine, we need to prevent the ongoing damage to the kidney. We do this by by aggressive hydration, um, trying to get a urine output of at least 100 milliliters per hour. Also, we can use osmotic diuretics and alkalinize the urine. Now, alkalinizing the urine, we need to discuss this because what people think of alkalinizing the urine is that a pH of less than seven is acid, is acid, a pH greater than seven is alkaline, and the uninitiated will try to get the pH greater than seven. It's a very difficult task uh, if uh, if you're able to do it at all. Uh, When you're trying to alkalinize the urine to prevent um, that formation of very hemate, you want to get the pH greater than six. That's it. Just, it's a relative alkalinization. Get the pH greater than six, That'll prevent the conversion of myoglobin to ferrihemate. That'll prevent the hemate from be acting as a nephrotoxin. Now, interstitial nephritis is not something that we actually end up taking care of often in a surgical ICU, but it counts for about 10% of the cases of intrinsic renal failure. Drug-induced allergic interstitial nephritis counts for about 90% of the cases of acute interstitial nephritis. And numerous other drugs uh, can cause it. And a lot of drugs are drugs that are commonly used in ICUs, and this is why we should rule it out. Those are drugs like penicillin, cephalosporins, uh, sulfonamides, NSAIDs, uh, and uh, some uh, diuretics. The time of onset is variable from the time the patient takes the medication to the time uh, the patient begins to develop symptoms. It could be days, it could be weeks. The patient could be started on an antibiotic on Monday. They may not demonstrate symptoms until the following Friday or Saturday. Most of the cases are considered to be what's called idiosyncratic and are not dose-related. People could have fever, they could have skin rash, and eosinophilia. arthralgias are also common. Eosinophiliauria is present in most of the cases of antibiotic-related disease. So when we do our workups of patients who are in these surgical ICUs and they're having uh, renal fire, this is the reason why we obtain urine eosinophils. Why? Most patients are on either a penicillin or cephalosporin, and we want to rule out the uh, uh, presence of an interstitial nephritis. The syndrome should resolve after we get rid of the offending drug. Steroids uh, uh, may also help speed the recovery. And keep in mind that we said that uh, renal causes, renal parenchymal diseases of acute renal failure, only count for about 10 to 30% of the cases. Certainly the most common cause is uh, pre-renal causes. And this is uh, anything really that causes hypotension or hypoperfusion. Patients under resuscitated, um, uh, hypovolemia from hemorrhagic blood loss. Other causes could be a myocardial dysfunction, uh, MI, causing a decrease of uh, flow, uh, as well as a, a abdominal compartment syndrome uh, can uh, impair uh, renal blood flow. The best way to really prevent pre-renal renal failure is. Uh, making sure the patient has adequate volume resuscitation. Those patients who typically are coming out of the operating room, they're a trauma patient, a burn patient, or typically patients that you see just in most surgical intensive care units have a pretty significant cause um, to have pre-renal renal insufficiency. And as we've said, this is the most common cause of acute renal fire. Patients may have had blood loss, they may have third spacing uh, going along with their uh, intradominal operation. If they're a burn patient, they're going to have just massive and sensible and evaporative losses as well as uh, interstitial edema. Uh, so there's certainly make sure that you have given the patient adequate uh, preload, volume resuscitate them. If you give the patient 1, 2, perhaps at the outer limit 3 liters of crystalloid and you're not seeing a, an improvement in their urine output then you need to be start moving towards intravascular monitoring, perhaps in a CVP or uh, a SWAN to obtain a pulmonary artery occlusive pressure. This is a highly controversial topic in the literature. Uh, there's reams and reams of articles written on do SWANs really improve output? And I'm not actually a big believer in those. Uh, um, uh, I'm not a big believer in PA catheters anymore, as as well. Uh, but we do have things like lithium uh, dilution cardiac output monitors, and certainly uh, echocardiography or uh, transesophageal uh, dec- um, excuse me uh, transes- transesophageal echo uh, is helpful in determining preload and cardiac function. You want to obtain the usual uh, studies that you attain uh in a patient who's oliguric like working of acute renal failure. You want to get the urine looking for the interstitial nephritis like we've already talked about. You want to get uh urinalysis looking specifically at the specific gravity, urine osmolality, and urinary sodium. When you look at the uh, uh urine osmolality, the urine osmolality is typically going to be greater than four hundred. The specific gravity is going to be greater than 1.024, and the urinary sodium is going to be less than 20. What these numbers indicate that the uh, uh, kidney is trying to maximally concentrate the urine. It's trying to retain on much of the water it possibly can, and why it does that by holding on to the sodium. And That's why you see the low sodium. One thing that I didn't mention that certainly is worthy of consideration is the abdominal compartment syndrome. Patients who've had massive fluid resuscitations from hemorrhage, trauma, surgery, burn, whatever, we're seeing a large number of patients having abdominal compartment syndrome. Again, this is another highly controversial topic, as perhaps we're giving patients way too much fluid, creating this. Uh, I like to call it iatrogenesis imperfecta or iatrogenesis magnum. Uh, But abdominal compartment syndrome is really manifested by a very tight abdomen peak inspiratory pressures on the ventilator because with abdominal compartment syndrome, the um, intra viscera, the bowels, the liver, whatever, swell. And as they swell, they push up on the diaphragm, making it very hard for the diaphragm to travel downward on inspiration. So if the patient's on a mechanical ventilator, they're gonna have very high peak inspiratory pressures if they're on a volume mode or very low tidal volumes if they're on pressure mode. How this affects the kidney is that all that pressure in the abdomen pushes down on the vena cava and pushes down on the renal vein. Now, if the patient has a mean arterial pressure of 65, that's the mean pressure in the renal artery going into the kidney. If a normal patient has a CVP of 5, then 65 minus five gives a mean perfusion pressure of roughly 60. But if their intradominal pressure uh, from their abdominal compartment syndrome is 30, that pressure is then transmitted onto the renal vein, making that uh, pressure in the renal vein approximately 30. Well, then you've got your 65 for your mean pressure minus your 30 for your CVP or renal vein pressure. That gives you only a perfusion pressure of roughly 35. That decreases the blood flow through the kidney and therefore certainly decreases the uh, function of the kidney. And in those cases, uh, a decompressive laparotomy uh, should improve renal function. So if you think somebody may have abdominal compartment syndrome, certainly you're going to look at their abdomen, but you're also going to measure bladder pressures. Certainly last, but definitely not least, if you think somebody is uh, pre-renal, you've done the appropriate studies, um, you need to be thinking about uh, intravascular monitoring as we've mentioned. Now there are some conditions that will make uh, the tests, such as the phena uh, and the urinary sodium, inaccurate. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and one is giving the patient diuretic. Diuretics work by inducing what we call a naturesis. Naturesis means the peeing out of sodium. So if you give a drug that basically works by making you pee out the sodium and with it the water, um, then your urinary sodium is going to be falsely elevated. There are other uh, conditions. If the um, uh, acute renal failure is uh, after the use of a contrast uh, dye or patients who have uh, CHF uh, or cirrhosis, that will also make these uh, studies inadequate. Or, uh, in, uh, in Post renal uh, causes of acute renal failure occurred about 1 to 15 percent of the cases of acute renal failure. Um, and uh, as the name implies, post renal, these are things that are going to be causing problems that are distal to the kidney. Essentially, the ureter, the bladder, and the urethra. And by the nature of these, these are typically what we call an obstructive uropathy. Uh, obstructive means something's obstructing it, and uropathy, obviously, uh, something affecting um, uh, the urogenital system. Things that cause this, probably the most common, is uh, something like a plug Foley catheter. And this is one of the first things you should do when a patient has low urine output is ask somebody to irrigate the catheter, make sure that the catheter is patent. This is clearly important in somebody who has uh, blood or pigment in their urine or any kind of sediment in their urine. Uh, patients may have some flank pain because of distension of the renal capsule, or they can have suprapubic pain caused by the bladder distension. So obviously you wanna feel the abdomen. If you feel a palpable bladder, that's a problem. Some hospitals have uh, uh, these uh, little ultrasound machines that the nurses uh, can go around and assess whether the patient has um, urinary distension, you'd have a visible bladder. With uh, more and more uh, use of ultrasound in the intensive care unit, that would, another be, uh, that would be another good indication for an ultrasound. It's just do a very quick ultrasound of the abdomen and to see if the bladder is distended. If a patient's not making urine and they have a distended bladder, you, know, you would have a pretty good uh, suspicion that the Foley catheter is not draining properly. So what do we do when uh, our patient uh, is experiencing acute renal failure? Well, let's first of all, I'll look at the non-oliguric acute renal failure. This would be the patient who's still making uh, urine, but we see an elevation in their BUN and creatinine. First thing is to consider non-renal uh, causes of the azotemia or that elevation of BUN and creatinine. Well, what are some of these things? Well, the BUN is a nitrogenous waste product of protein, catabolism or protein metabolism. And if you have conditions that's causing an increase in the breakdown of protein, which is also known as catabolism, that will result in an increase in the BUN. Corticosteroids, which are uh, pretty common uh, use anymore for right or for wrong reasons, can cause an increase in your BUN. So if you're looking at the medication list, patient has a BUN, they're making good urine. Uh, corticosteroids may be a cause of that. GI uh, GI bleeding. Um, is a uh, common cause as well. And that's another uh, thing that you always want to be thinking about. If your patient, say, has a hemoglobin of 10 one day and it drops to 7 the next, and you see an elevation of the BUN, uh, that should make one start thinking about a possible GI bleed. Hyperalimentation, uh, increased creatinine can be seen with uh, rhabdomyolysis, and administration of certain drugs as well can cause an increase in creatinine. The workup of a patient who has non-oligaric renal failure is very similar to that of the patient who has oliguric renal failure. If a patient has a creatinine of four, um, again, you do the same studies. You get urine free acinophils, urinary sodium, um, uh, urinalysis, uh, ultrasound of the abdomen. But obviously, you wouldn't be giving these patients fluid challenges. Look at the medication list again. Look for any potential nephrotoxic drugs for the first thing. And the second thing you want to do is make sure that if you have any medications that need renal adjustment, typically some antibiotics, if you have a patient on uh, Lovenox for DVT prophylaxis, you want to discontinue the Lovenox and switch it over to heparin. Now let's approach our patient who is not making urine and has an elevation of creatinine. This is the, the one we typically see the most uh, commonly, and this is what we would call oliguric, or not making much urine, acute renal failure. And as I said earlier, the first thing you do is you do the simple stuff first, and you make sure that your, your Foley catheter is working well. And make sure that the, you're able to irrigate the catheter and exclude those post-renal causes. Uh, if you know that your uh, Foley catheters are getting well, uh, get the ultrasound of the abdomen, roll out any upper tract obstruction. Uh, they'll be able to tell if there's any dilation of the renal pelvis. Now, if the patient has uh, two kidneys, it's, it would seem unlikely that if they had an obstruction uh, of one ureter that they would experience acute renal failure. But it's important to keep in mind that 1% of the population has a solitary kidney, and a functionally solitary kidneys, uh, and that's where one is non-functional, are even more common. So let me go over that again. 1% of the patient, 1% of the population has one kidney, um, and there is a, a group of patients out there who have two kidneys anatomically present, but only one of them is functional, and that occurs at a frequency of greater than 1%. Once you've ruled out the uh, postrenal causes, then you really need to focus on the prerenal causes. Uh, you want to give the patient a fluid challenge, and that's typically um, uh, 10% of the estimated circulating volume. About 500 to a, a liter in an adult, 500 mLs to a liter. I personally don't like the 500 mL fluid bowls. There was an article that came out in Critical Care Medicine in the late 90s that really showed that a 500 cc fluid challenge was hardly a fluid challenge at all. And if the patient is having pre-renal oliguria, uh, once you give them the fluid challenge, you'll see an improvement in the urine output. Typically, we do this with lactated ringers or saline solution. So keep in mind and we'll talk about this um, in a subsequent talk but if you give somebody a liter of fluid and you see the urine output improve for the next hour and then the hour after that the urine output starts dropping again there's a very good explanation for that and that is that 65 to 75% of the fluid you administer as that fluid bolus leaves the vascular compartment within 30 minutes of uh, giving it therefore uh the improvement in the urine output you're likely to see uh is only going to be transient now this gets to one of my pet peeves, and that is, if you have somebody going at uh, I don't know, make it a, a post-operative patient from a, a colectomy, um, or a minor trauma, or a major trauma, or a burn, and you've got their fluid rate going at 100, or 150, or 200, um, and that urine output uh, is dropping off over a couple of hours, and you think that they have pre-renal oliguria, then you give them a fluid bolus, and, and then urine output improves for an hour or two, and then it goes back down again. and people bolus them again. Um, if you're having to repeat bolus the patient, maybe you need to really consider your maintenance rate. Um, uh, and This is what we call our bump and bolus. We'd like a patient to make 30 cc's of urine an hour. If they're making um, more than 100, they're probably making too much. But if we've got them going at 100 and we have to give them a bolus and they drop off again, and we would give them another bolus, why would we keep them going at 100 cc's an hour? Maybe we take that fluid rate up to 125, 150, 200. I don't know what the right rate would be. I don't know what your patient is. I don't know what their problem is. But clearly, um, the first fluid rate is not appropriate. So reevaluate that. The other thing you need to think about is maybe the patient's volume status is appropriate, but maybe they have a flow problem. Now keep in mind, what's the difference between volume and flow? Well volume is how much, uh, volume is it, or how much fluid is in the container, or how much container, how much fluid is in the vascular system. Flow is how well it's moving forward. You may have a patient who has adequate volume on board, but the heart isn't pumping it forward fast enough. And that would make you think, does the patient have poor cardiac output, and have they suffered, a myocardial event? And again, if they had a myocardial event for myocardial ischemia or cardiomyopathy uh, or valvular heart disease, you need to really tailor your uh, therapy to the patient's principal problems. I'm not really that old, at least I don't think I am, Uh, but when I was a resident and a fellow, uh, echocardiography wasn't uh, as readily available as it is now. And it makes things simply uh, uh, much more easier in the intensive care units, managing patients with uh, uh, cardiac diseases because you need to consider patients who have valvular heart disease. Uh, You need to adjust your treatments based on that. Patients uh, who have uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, we certainly are able to gain much more information about the patient's anatomical lesions of the heart, which certainly allows us to customize their physiological management as well. Now what do we do in the patient? We talked about the pre-renal, we talked about the post-renal, but what if the patient has an intrinsic or a parenchymal injury to the kidney? Well, as we've already talked about when we introduced parenchymal diseases, typically the insults already happened. So what we need to do is just simply make sure that we don't continue to uh, injure the kidney be it with uh, nephrotoxins or whatever. So make sure that you remove the offending agent. And typically, our treatment is mostly supportive at that point as far as the parenchymal injury to the kidney. Diuretics uh, have uh, been debated uh, over the years. Uh, People used to try to convert uh, uh, oliguric or low urine output um, renal failure to non-oliguric or uh, urine output renal failure uh, with the premise that uh, those patients were just easier to manage and and had improved survival. Well, I would agree that the patients typically seem, uh, at least when you're taking care of them, to be easier to manage, but the data has not demonstrated um, an improvement in outcomes but I'm always looking for uh, new data on that topic uh, because my bias certainly is is that they're uh, easier to uh, maintain when they're still peeing. But we want to talk about evidence-based medicine, not, as one of my fellows would say, eminence-based medicine. Renal range dopamine. Now, now renal range dopamine is, to me, one of the more entertaining things that goes on associated with acute renal failure. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times over the years, uh, hundreds if not thousands of times, I put uh, people on, quote, renal range dopamine uh, for the purposes of improving uh, renal blood flow. Um, absolutely uh, no data to support that. Um, our thinking when we did that was that um, dopamine uh, uh, basically acted at dopaminergic receptors uh, on the kidney and improved renal blood flow. Absolutely no data to support that. No data at all. Now, when you put people on dopamine, you actually increase their cardiac output. So there may be some improvement in their cardiac output. Dopamine is a natriuretic, and what I said earlier, a natriuretic means you pee off sodium, so it's another word for saying it's a diuretic. So you're giving a drug that improves cardiac output, and improvement in cardiac output does what to renal blood flow? Well, it improves it. That will do what to urine output production? That'll improve it. Um, um, if you give a diuretic, what it will it do to urine output? It'll improve it but the idea that dopamine is acting through dopaminergic receptors to improve renal blood flow and preserve renal uh, function, uh, no data. Dopamine does not uh, prevent the development or limit the prognosis of acute renal failure. Now, everything we do has an action and reaction, and you know, starting somebody on an inotrope is not a benign thing. You're certainly going to have the potential of increasing the myocardial oxygen consumption, uh, inducing cardiac arrhythmias even at the low doses of uh, less than five or two and a half mics per kilogram per minute of dopamine, which is what we used to consider the, quote, renal range dopamine. Now, if a patient is uh, in acute renal failure, really want to keep a close eye on the electrolytes. Keep in mind what I said earlier is that people who have renal failure don't die of renal failure. They die of complications of renal failure, and those complications are volume overload, electrolyte abnormalities, and GI bleeds, and, and coagulopathies. So you want to get your electrolytes at least daily, and if there's a lot of change, you want to get them probably even more frequently. The one that we typically are attuned to is hyperkalemia. And hyperkalemia, we typically think of high potassium of greater than 5, uh, but certainly uh, greater than 6.5 is a medical emergency. Now, in a situation where you have a lot of catabolism, a lot of tissue injury, you're going to have large amounts of potassium released. And you can see pretty rapid increases of your potassium over a reasonably short period of time. Now, hyperkalemia uh, can cause some real significant cardiac problems and can ultimately result in in asystole. The classic EKG uh, uh, findings that we talk about are loss of P waves, widening of the QRS, and then ever so popular peak T waves. So it's the peak T waves that we commonly think of when we talk about hyperkalemia. There's really two approaches that we use when we talk about treatment of hyperkalemia. Um, and a patient who's got acute renal failure. Well, probably the the actually three approaches I should say. Probably the most definitive way of managing the hyperkalemia is having the patient undergo hemodialysis. Now, uh, that that would be great, but that may not be uh, uh, feasible because the patient may not have. Um, catheters in place, the family hasn't been consented, it may be 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night and you don't have a dialysis, uh, a nurse immediately available, but you've got a patient who has a potassium of 6.8 and they're having peak T waves, and the question is, what do you do with that? Well, the first thing you want to do is is to um, protect the heart from the cardiac arrhythmias. Um, So you want to give uh, calcium gluconate, you want to give 10 cc's of a 10% solution. What that does is that stabilizes the myocardial membrane uh, from the effects of potassium and hopefully prevents any arrhythmias um, on the heart, certainly uh, that dreaded asystole. Then you have the question of what are you going to do with the potassium? Now, you could hide the potassium so the body doesn't see it, or you can get rid of the potassium. And what we talk about is when we talk about hiding the potassium let 's talk about getting rid of the potassium first. You can get rid of the dial, you can get rid of the potassium by dialysis, dialyze it out, or you can get rid of the potassium by using potassium trapping resins and this is typically caxalate. You can give caxalate anywhere from twenty to sixty grams in about one hundred to one hundred and fifty grams of sorbitol. You could do that orally. Which is really just kind of horrible. Or you give it rectally, which doesn't really make the nurses incredibly happy either. Uh, but the, for, uh, as far as what's best for the patient, what's perhaps most functional, uh, or, or most efficient at capturing the potassium, that would be the, uh, uh, KXLA given rectally. That'll actually bind the potassium and then remove it from the body. Now what you could do, the other thing you could do is what I call hiding the insulin. And what you do when you hide the insulin is you give the insulin and the uh, glucose. Most of the books say you can give about 10 to 15 units of uh, regular insulin. I usually give just about 10 units of uh, insulin and then an amp of D50. And what that does is that drives the potassium into the cells. Now, when you think about the um, most of your potassium in your body lives inside the cells. They, remember, you have to maintain electroneutrality across your cellular membranes. So you know the, the uh, concentration of sodium is high outside; it's low inside the cell. And potassium pretty much mirrors it. Remember, they're both cations. So potassium's high in the cell, low outside the cell. So when you have a high potassium, by giving um, uh, insulin and by giving dextrose through a co-transport mechanism, going back to some uh, basic biochemistry flashback nightmares, you're going to push that insulin or that push that potassium into the cell, and that it will immediately lower your your serum potassium levels. So that's good, right? Well, it is good if somebody's potassium six and a half, and they're having all kinds of uh, cardiac arrhythmias. But keep in mind, you haven't decreased your total body potassium. It's still elevated. You've only lowered the serum potassium by hiding it. So over a couple of hours, that potassium will slowly start to leak out. So if somebody has a um, elevated potassium and you start giving them dialysis and, or k after after uh, you've pushed it into the cells, uh, several hours later you'll see the potassium start to sneak back up there. So you need to be mindful of that. Other electrolyte abnormalities you can see with people who have renal failure, low sodium, that's hyponatremia, hyperphosphatemia, we see that all the time, hypocalcemia, and metabolic acidosis. And the reason why you see the metabolic acidosis is because the kidney is not really able to make bicarbonate. I want to end looking at two conditions that I end up treating a lot as a a burn ICU, as a burn surgeon, and burn intensivist. Obviously, those are patients with burns and patients who have sepsis or septic shock. The burn patient is at significant risk of developing acute renal failure because of all the massive amounts of evaporative fluid losses, the fluid shifts uh, that we see. Patients can... um, um, evaporate liters upon liters of um, um, uh, free water off of their burns in a daily period in addition to their insensible losses they have just by being on a mechanical ventilator. Other things that can cause um, uh, real thing in a burn patient is myoglobin. Uh, electrical injuries are, are uh, basically will cook the muscle and as it cooks the muscle it releases high levels of potassium and myoglobin. People who have circumferential burns, typically to the legs, uh, can get um, both uh, compartment syndromes which can cause muscle damage uh, which will release myoglobin uh, or they can just have burned so deep that you see direct damage to the muscles. You know, for lack of a better descriptor, you see the muscle cook, and as the muscle cooks, it releases that pigment. So again, we're always looking at the uh, urine. You know, there's, uh, like we talked about hyperkalemia. uh, One of the drugs typically used to uh, do rapid sequence or pharmacologically-assisted intubations is succinylcholine. Succinylcholine is a drug that's contraindicated in cases of hyperkalemia, people who are quadriplegic or paraplegic, and in burns. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, from a pharmacological safety standpoint, you can typically give succinylcholine uh, in the, the first 24 or sometimes 48 hours from a burn injury. Why you don't do that is kind of off the topic, and we can talk about that some other time. Most uh, experienced burn providers, though, including myself, stay away from the use of succinylcholine, uh, either in an acute burn or a a patient who's been burned several days ago. But one of the things I'll do, if a patient's coming in uh, and they're severely burned, deep burns of their legs, uh, I'll ask for a Foley catheter before um, we intubate them. And that always kind of confuses people. Jeff, you know, airway, breathing, CAT scan, you know, F Foley is down on the list. But I actually want to know what the urine looks like. Patients sitting there, they're breathing, they're controlling their own airway, it takes maybe another minute to get a Foley catheter in. if you send a specimen to the lab, um, it's not going to come back in you know four or five minutes but if I put a quote it's you know maybe 20 minutes to an hour to like get that lab back. But if I put a fully catheter in and I see frankly pigmented urine, uh, be the patient from an electrical injury or from a thermal burn with extensive injuries to their limbs, well, they've got pigment in their urine because they've got myoglobinuria. That means they've got muscle damage to the point that they release myoglobin. If their muscle damage is severe enough that it is pigment in the urine, then it also releases potassium. And in the appearance of that urine, I would certainly refrain uh, from using succinylcholine or anectine for a pharmacologically-assisted innovation. Sepsis can cause uh, acute renal failure through both direct and indirect methods, um, both through the use of endotoxins and prostaglandin-mediated damage to the, the renal uh, microvascular system. Uh, sepsis causes hypotension uh, that can also result in kind of a pre-renal s- situation. Uh, The real treatment of this is treatment of the sepsis and um, uh, avoidance of nephrotoxic drugs when you can help it with more and more uh, resistant organisms. That's becoming more and more difficult. But uh, let's say more judicious use of your antibiotics. Certainly being mindful that a patient who is on norepinephrine um, in septic shock with a low mean arterial blood pressure and getting um, some powerful powerful nephrotoxic antibiotics, uh, you'd be mindful that uh, you want to follow the renal failure closely and also follow your drug levels closely. That's a rather long podcast. Um, but it's a huge topic, and, and keep in mind that there's a lot that we haven't covered in, in regards to acute renal failure. Uh, we haven't talked about chronic renal failure, the preoperative management of a chronic renal failure patient, and the postoperative management. And we have not even gone into the issues of um, renal replacement therapy. I will tell you, uh, and I believe that this is clearly supported in the in the uh, literature, is that. Earlier renal consultation has been demonstrated to improve outcomes in patients with acute renal failure. Now, we've quoted this statistic multiple times in this podcast. Fifty percent of people who have acute renal failure go on to die. One out of two. And uh, we know that, that it's been supported in literature. Early consultation with a nephrologist improves the outcomes of these patients. I am not a nephrologist. I don't get any kickbacks from nephrologists. I have heard, I'm I'm an intensivist. I have heard intensivists say, I don't need a nephrologist to manage this until I need the patient on dialysis because I'm an ICU doctor. I can handle all things related to critical illness. I find that a little bit disconcerting. I cannot believe that after doing a fellowship in critical care that uh, I know more about kidney disease than a nephrologist who does, spent three years in fellowship does nothing all day but see people who have kidney disease and does all their research and all their academic work on kidney disease. And I certainly believe in a sense of collaboration that even if I'm doing everything absolutely perfectly and there's a one out of two chance my patient can die, I want to make sure that I have all the right smart people taking care of the patient. And I think it's not a sign of weakness, but clearly a sign of maturity, collaboration, and wisdom uh, to provide appropriate consultations at the appropriate times. So that's my uh, brief review on acute renal failure. Uh, I hope you, you found it useful. Uh, my name is Jeff Guy. The, the, my podcast is called Surgery IC Rounds. Thank you.